Science Friday is supported by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. It's been less than a week since the eruption of the underwater volcano Hungatanga Hunga Hapai, and international aid is only just starting to reach the archipelago that makes up the Kingdom of Tonga. The blast from the eruption had the force of an estimated 10 million tons of TNT, spit volcanic debris as high as 34 miles up, and sent tsunami waves as far away as Japan and Peru. This eruption was also one of the most documented volcanoes in history. Numerous satellites and other sensors caught the explosion. And the data from those sensors may help us understand volcanoes like this one better than we ever have before. With me is Umer Irfan, staff writer for Vox. Welcome back, Umer. Hi, Ira. Thanks for having me back. Let's talk about this uh, this disaster that hit an inhabited archipelago where only a few people were killed. What do we know about how Tonga is faring in the wake of this eruption? Well, as you noted, you know, there has only been three reported fatalities from this particular eruption. Tonga has a population of about 100,000 people. So given the scale of this, it's been quite remarkable that so few people have been hurt outright. But we've also had a very difficult time getting in touch with Tonga because there's an undersea communications cable that was severed during this eruption. And so a lot of the uh, feedback they've been getting from outside has been from overhead flights and things like that. And since eight flights have started getting in this week, the big concern right now is is COVID because, you know, the uh, Tonga as an island nation has managed to largely avoid it. They've only had one confirmed COVID-19 case. And so they're trying to delicately balance, you know, recovery from this disaster while also making sure that they don't have to deal with a public health disaster at the same time. Do we know what, what the impact of all this ash is to the health and ecosystems of Tonga? Right now, it's not clear, but certainly there's a tremendous amount of ash. And the worry is that this ash, you know, is slightly acidic, has compounds like sulfur and phosphorus in it. And so that if water hits it, it starts to become something that's a far more corrosive. And the fear is it can seep into drinking water and to waterways and cause damage to local fish and uh, livestock. And so they're definitely worried about trying to clean up enough ash right now. And part of the reason they weren't able to get aid supplies for such a long time is that many of the runways available were covered in ash and only now were they cleared enough that they could start landing aircraft. You know, I, I mentioned that this is one of the most documented eruptions in history. How, how is it so documented? Well, one has been just the pervasive, uh, you know, explosion of technology. People in nearby islands were able to film this and, you know, see the ash cloud and even see the shockwave come away from this eruption. But this eruption was also not that big of a surprise. It started beginning in December 20th. 
And the big eruption happened on January 14. And so people were kind of keeping their eye on this volcano for a while because they saw some rumblings of activity. And um, in this area of the Pacific, there was, as you noted, this Japanese weather satellite that happened to be over the area and managed to film this from space. And so there's been a lot of uh, documentation on the ground from space and from sensors uh, because this has been something that had some warning signs uh, well in advance. You know, there have been some giant volcanoes in the past like Krakatoa that have been able to alter the climate for a while. Uh, this is not quite that big, is it? Right. You know, while there was a large explosion, the ash cloud that a lot of scientists have been tracking seems to be of the magnitude that it wouldn't affect the global climate. You know, the ash, the sulfur dioxide in there can linger in the atmosphere and it reflects the sun's light back into space and it can lower planetary temperatures. And we've seen that with eruptions like Krakatoa or Mount Pinatubo. But in this case, scientists expect that this will not have that scale or that magnitude of an effect on the global temperature. With all the data that they're collecting, what can scientists learn that they haven't known before about volcanoes like this? Well, you know, with a massive explosion like this, one of the key things that makes it so damaging is that there's very little in the way of warning. And so if they can find, you know, subtle signs of a potential eruption, they can get warning signs out quickly. Um, and some of the side effects of these uh, volcanoes, you know, like the tsunamis that have been uh you know, percolating throughout the Pacific Ocean. You know, there was a tsunami that was blamed for an oil spill off the coast of Peru tied to this volcanic eruption. And so with this data, they can better understand the warning signs ahead of time, but then also just get a better understanding of what's going on deep within the earth. You know, some of the mechanisms of that actually lead to eruptions are still something of a mystery. And so there's a lot left to learn about the geology of this planet. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to our weekly COVID update. You've been reporting in Vox about a new frontier and the effort to contain COVID-19. And I'm referring to a universal vaccine, which would potentially protect us all from all current variants and any future variants. How is that coming along and how does that work? Right. And not just variants of COVID-19. There are researchers that are working on vaccines that could potentially protect us from all coronaviruses. So they're aiming pretty wide here with this um, approach. And so there was a uh, team at the U.S. Army that recently reported that they made some progress on developing a vaccine that can target multiple variants at the same time. But the idea of targeting, you know, a broader scope of viruses is something that scientists have been wrestling with for a long time. And it's been difficult because it uses basically a different mechanism in our immune system than the one that we typically use with vaccines. And so there's two main approaches. One is where you basically put together a sampler platter of different antigens on a vaccine. So you essentially take, in the case of COVID-19, multiple spike proteins from multiple variants on a single vaccine and inject that. And the idea is that your immune system will learn to recognize those, but also fill in the blanks and potentially adapt to future variants. And the other approach is to get the vaccine to target the uh, parts of the virus that don't change, that stay the same between a species of virus. And that's been a bit challenging as well because um, the parts of the virus that don't change are also sometimes the parts of the virus that don't generate a strong immune response. And so the question is then, how do you get the immune system to recognize this and adapt and begin to counter it. And that's something that scientists are working on right now. But researchers like including, you know, Anthony Fauci and other researchers at the National Institutes of Health say that this should be an urgent priority, that this is something that we really need to start investing in now because it will not only help us get out of this pandemic, but potentially prevent the next one. So it's it's urgent to, to develop this wide scale vaccine as as urgent as it is to try to do a more specific one. 
Yeah, that's right. You know, with the specific vaccines, those were the faster ones to get out. So it makes sense that we prioritize those. But, uh, you know, we're seeing right now that, you know, the early vaccines that we have, they were targeted to some of the earliest versions of the virus, and they're losing a bit of efficacy with these uh, new variants. And we're seeing that somewhat with Omicron with a bit more of a breakthrough infections among people who are vaccinated. Mm-hmm. This brings me to another issue that you've reported on, and I'm talking about how we're even assessing our immunity to a virus like COVID-19. It's not as simple as looking at our antibodies, which are a short-term thing. Right. You know, the main benchmark we've been using are what are called neutralizing antibodies. So these are antibodies, small proteins that bind to the virus, and they're said to be neutralizing if they can prevent infection in the first place. But we're seeing that, you know, in a lot of cases, people who have been vaccinated are still getting infected, but they're not getting severely ill. And that's because the other part of the immune system is starting to kick in, namely the uh, memory part of the immune system, the memory B cells and the memory T cells. The B cells in your immune system generate the antibodies to begin with, and the T cells, while they don't prevent infection, infection, what they do is they look for cells that have been infected with the virus that have been hijacked to turn into virus factories, and it eliminates those. And so what scientists are saying is that in order to assess long-term immunity over the years and to come, they need to start looking at the activity of these B cells and T cells to see how strong they are and how good they are at, you know, recalibrating and remounting a response. So they may not prevent an infection to begin with, but they can prevent it from being too dangerous or damaging. Are there are there my, uh, models for this? Other diseases that uh, or viruses that could provide a map for some kind of ideal end result? Well, there are perhaps other coronaviruses. You know, uh, there are a couple coronaviruses in circulation that cause the common cold. And, you know, they're fairly mild as illnesses because lots of people are exposed to them throughout their lives. And basically the immune system, after, you know, recognizing them repeatedly, realizes that this is a threat that they should be ready to prepare for. And so that might be an ideal scenario for COVID-19 that rather than being this super dangerous disease that lands people in the hospital, if it just leads to mild cold-like symptoms, that seems to be uh, progress. And so that might be one of the pathways that COVID-19 could follow as we see more broad immunity spread throughout the population via vaccination. Yeah, and it would be great to have a vaccine that protects people from long COVID too, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the big things is that, you know, COVID-19 tends to be, can be a chronic illness and preventing that infection to begin with will certainly uh, mitigate those cases. But uh, long COVID still seems to be a little bit of a mystery. There are some evidence that there are other biomarkers that are associated with it. But uh, yes, preventing those infections to begin with is definitely going to be a key part of that. Let's move on to a a more pessimistic note rather than uh, what you're talking about in optimism. There's a new large-scale survey of antibiotic resistance around the globe, and it's finding that we have a really deadly problem of antibiotic resistance on our hands, don't we? Yeah, a team of researchers just published in The Lancet this week that they conducted their first global survey of antibiotic resistance, and they found that antibiotics are more dangerous, have killed more people than HIV or malaria. And so according to the model, they found, uh, you know, looking at 471 million medical records from Uh, almost every country in the world, they said that there are at least 1.3 million deaths in 2019 that could be attributed to antibiotic-resistant infections from bacteria that were previously vulnerable to antibiotics. You know, antibiotics are these drugs that specifically target bacteria without harming human cells, and so they're very powerful tools, but it seems that if we overuse them, that bacteria will evolve over time to become more resistant, and the fear is that our current use patterns of antibiotics is hurting these tools and their utility in the future. And so is there any way to try to slow this down until we find some sort of new method? 
There are a few approaches. You know, one is simply to be smarter and more thoughtful about how we deploy these uh, these antibiotics. You know, not deploying them as the default option whenever somebody comes in when they're ill. Uh, antibiotics are used a lot in livestock, and so if we can reduce the use of antibiotics there, then uh, we can also. Uh, reduce the rate of formation of these antibiotic resistant bacteria. But some researchers are also looking at other therapies, you know, beyond antibiotics. And one of the big ones is phage therapy. There's a, a group of researchers in Belgium that have used phages, which are these viruses that actually infect bacteria to treat more than 100 patients. And so this is, might be a treatment option for antibiotic resistant bacteria into the future or may even become the new default. Yeah, phage therapy is very old. It dates back uh, pre-World War II, so we're going back to the future on this one. Right. You know, there's been a little bit of a tough time for uh, regulators to approve this, but in Belgium they had, you know, uh, a regulatory apparatus that allowed them to experiment with this, and they've been seeing some good results so far. And no vaccines for bacterial infections. Well, bacteria, I mean, there are vaccines that you can develop, and I think that should be the other part of the strategy as well. You know, with uh, the advent of antibiotics, people have become a little bit complacent that, you know, we can treat these diseases so we don't need to vaccinate them. But really, the researchers here say that uh, we need to redouble our efforts to vaccinate and prevent these infections to begin with. Well, Omer, thank you very much for taking time to be with us today, as always. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Umair Irfan, staff writer for Vox. He has joined us from Washington, D.C. We have to take a short break, and when we come back, exploring a link between a virus and multiple sclerosis. Stay with us. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. A group of scientists at Harvard say they have made a major breakthrough in understanding multiple sclerosis. For years, they have been testing out a hypothesis that the Epstein-Barr virus causes MS. Yes, that's the same virus responsible for mononucleosis. Researchers analyzed a database of 10 million active-duty military members, and they found that service members who contracted the Epstein-Barr virus were 32 times more likely to be diagnosed with MS. The research was published in the journal Science. To help us better understand this research and its impact is the study's senior author, Dr. Alberto Esquiero. He's a professor of epidemiology and nutrition at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you. Tell me about what you found. How were you able to determine that people who had previously contracted the Epstein-Barr virus, were much more likely to be diagnosed with MS. Right. We started with people who were not infected with the EBV virus. So we followed them over time for an average of 10 years. And basically we found that those individuals who were not infected with EBV, they never developed MS. So only after they got infected with EBV, then the risk of MS jumped out over 34. Well, 10 million people, that's a pretty big sample, is it not? Yeah, it was necessary because uh, EBV infects virtually everyone. So it's not easy to find a large population of individuals who are not infected with EBV. 
So among the 10 million, only roughly 5% were EPV negative at the beginning of the study. Now tell us how this has changed how we understand MS as a disease. Well, MS has been typically described even today as an autoimmune disease of unknown etiology, meaning we don't know the cause of it. So I think that should change to say we now know that MS is a rare complication. I want to emphasize rare complication of EPV infection. I don't want any listener to be scared. Oh, I had mononucleosis and going to get MS. The risk is still very small. Okay, so you say it's very rare. Why do you think that EBV might be causing MS? What is the what is the cause? You know, we are quite confident that EBV is the cause. So it's a common setting for a virus to be relatively harmless in the majority of people, but cause a severe disease as a complication. A good example is poliomyelitis. Before we had a vaccine, the poliovirus would infect virtually every child in the country, but only one in 400 children would get paralytic disease. Now, MS is an autoimmune disease, correct? The body attacks itself. What is the mechanism, you might think, that EBV causes this to happen? Immunity and autoimmune plays an important role as a mechanism. But I don't think the definition of autoimmune disease gives the full story. So this is the complication of a viral infection in which the immune system plays an important role in, you know, in, in the pathology. Now, I understand that you've had a hunch for a while that Epstein-Barr was one of the main drivers of MS. Were you surprised, though, by the strength of this relationship between EBV and MS? I, I was surprised by how clear-cut the results were. Um, you know, I, I did expect a strong association, um, but I, I didn't expect to be so black and white because almost never in science you see results that are so so neat. So we, we, not, we look not only at testing our virus, we also had several controls in, in our study. One is the CMV virus, which is a virus transmitted in a similar manner to EPV. And what we found is that there is absolutely no association between CMV infection and the maze. Now, in addition, we did a screening of all the human virons. So we look at antibody responses against all the non-human viruses. And all the signals that came out were signals from EDV peptides. So it was really astonished to see there was no noise, no false uh, signal coming from anywhere else. EDV is so strong that overwhelms everything else. Now, do we know why some people, you, you talked about how rare it is to get EBV and then develop MS. Do we know why some people do develop MS from EBV? We know that there are some factors that once you're infected with EBV, your risk may be related to your genetic susceptibility that can increase the risk by two, threefold. We previously discovered that vitamin D deficiency is a risk factor for MS. It can, can double your risk. Cigarette smoking can double your risk of MS, and childhood obesity may cause an increase of 40-50%. So these factors together modulate the risk, but EPV stand out with a different magnitude. Have you found a cause and effect yet, or is this basically just a relationship that you've discovered? I believe it's the cause and effect, and uh, you know some people will question that. But uh, as you know, even the link between smoking and lung cancer has been questioned. So 
there is no experimental evidence directly that you randomize people to smoke or not smoke and get or not get lung cancer. We are in the same realm of evidence. This is a longitudinal study rigorously controlled in a large population. And there is not really alternative plausible explanation. Now, when we say cause in epidemiology, we mean if we could prevent the infection, we are going to prevent the mess. You prevent A, B will not happen. It doesn't mean we fully understand all the molecular mechanisms. That leads me to my next question, which is, how might this discovery help find better treatments or even a cure for MS? Well, the current treatment of MS, the most effective drugs are, uh, are called anti-CD20 antibodies or ocrelizumab, ocrevos is the commercial name. So the effect of this drug is to deplete the B cells. The B cells are part of our immune system and are the primary site of persistence of the EBV virus in our body. So EBV, once it infects one person, will remain in the B cell for the rest of this person's life. So I think anti-CD20 are so effective because they deplete the B cell, and by depleting the B cells, they also take away the virus. So it would make sense to target the virus directly with antiviral drug instead of depleting the B cells, which are an important part of the immune system. Could you target the virus as a vaccine? to prevent infection, or could you target it also after the MS has occurred? Uh, both are possible. There, there is ongoing research on a vaccine. Uh, Moderna is a vaccine in a phase one experimentation against EBV. Now, a vaccine to prevent MS would have to prevent EBV infection. Uh, if the vaccine does not fully prevent infection, it's difficult to predict what the effect of MS, uh, on MS could be. Is this Moderna clinical trial using an mRNA technology you're talking about, is it very exciting for you? It, it is. It's a very early phase. So it, it, it will take a few years before a vaccine is ready for large-scale experimentation. And also, because it the infection typically occurs in childhood, uh, to see where it prevents the mess <laughs> will take several years more. So we have to be patient. Uh, uh, it's a long-term project. And so where do you go from here? What's your next step? Well, we, we are, uh, as, as I mentioned, we, we are collaborating with clinical groups trying to test uh, antiviral drugs in people with the mace. We are trying to get funding for that. I think that that's the most exciting, uh, the most exciting part. In, in terms of the epidemiology, I think it would be also very useful if you could predict among these people who are being infected, who is going to get a mess and who is not going to get a mess. So more work on biomarker is also a, a, another line of investigation that we are pursuing. You know, anytime somebody calls something a, a breakthrough in medicine, uh, other people say, wait just a minute, that's a big term to use breakthrough. Uh, do you consider this a real breakthrough? I do, but it's not easy to change people's mind. You know, once you've been thinking on a disease uh, in a certain way for 20, 30 years and for your entire career, it is not easy to, to, to change uh, the mindset and accept that uh, we have a new paradigm. What are your What are your colleagues saying about this? Are they excited about this, or th or are they still saying, "Hey, you know, we see need to see some more evidence." Um, it's a 
you know, it's a very, very widespread go from people who are very excited and entirely agree with us, you know, then you have the you know, people who deny <laughs> the evidence and everything in between. I think, it, you know, it's, it's very, very uh, diverse. What do you attribute your success to? Is it just dogged determination that you are going to find something here and go through all those viruses and come up with some cure? Um, no, was the the right intuition, the right hypothesis in the beginning was was key to this. Uh, the identification of the right population, uh, the patients in establishing a you know, a long series of complex collaboration with multiple institutions and having an amazing team of collaborators here and there within the military that made this possible. It was 20 years of work literally to, to complete this research. There are going to be people who have MS who, who are going to say, hey, there's a cure around the corner. Right. For people who have MS, I think, yeah, I would be excited uh, on one hand, but also understand that the, the time frame for these things is measured in years. So short term would be five years. Let me say this. You know, my over-optimistic view to, to translate this into a new treatment, I would give myself five years of time in the best possible scenario. And finally, does this have implications for how we understand diseases, perhaps, or the mechanisms, perhaps, for Alzheimer's or chronic fatigue syndrome, where, you know, a virus may be involved? And we just don't know that yet. Right. Well, it showed that, yes, in some way, that it showed that we don't really fully understand the uh, viruses and the effect that they have in the long term. So we are particularly interested in diseases like Alzheimer's. There is a lot of interest in the potential effect of, uh, uh, of infection, the potential contribution of infection to Alzheimer's disease. And that is an area that our group is uh, initiating to, to explore. And also in relation with ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. But we, we, are not, we are very much behind uh, compared to, the, you know, <laughs> Maybe I hope it will take less than 20 years, but uh, it, it will take time before we can uh, elucidate those associations. Well, Dr. Asquiero, congratulations to you on the publication of your paper, and we wish you good luck. Thank you very much. Huge pleasure to be talking with you. Dr. Alberto Asquiero, professor of epidemiology and nutrition at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Did you ever wonder how little kids understand who has a close relationship with them? One of the clues they use to figure it out, who are they swapping saliva with? The closest bonds, it turns out, are with the people who are giving them kisses, sharing their forks and wiping their drool. These are the findings of a new study published in the journal Science. Joining me now to discuss her intriguing new research is Ashley Thomas, a postdoctoral fellow in Brain and Cognitive Sciences Department at MIT. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Nice to have you. This research really intrigues me. Of all the ways to research little kids' social connections, why did you decide to study saliva? You know, if you think about someone who you feel really close to, and then another person who you really like a lot, but you don't feel that close to, and then if you ask yourself, who would I be willing to share an ice cream cone with? 
almost everyone you ask this question to will immediately say the person that they're close to. It seems to be a cue that adults intuitively use to figure out how close two people are together. Hmm. And this is a cross-cultural thing. Everybody does it. Yeah. So, of course, there's some variation, but anthropologists have found that across cultures, people who are more willing to share bodily fluids, including saliva, tend to be those who feel close to one another. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's talk about little kids. How do you test if little kids were tuned into saliva sharing as an indicator of a close connection? Yeah. So we showed two different interactions. In one interaction, there is a woman with a puppet, and she takes a bite of an orange, feeds the puppet a bite of an orange, and then takes another bite of that orange. In the other interaction, there's a the same puppet but a different woman, and she passes a ball back and forth with that puppet. And the question is, who will respond when that puppet gets upset? And so we show both of the, the women on either side of the puppet. The puppet shakes and cries, puts its head on the table, and then we measure which woman that infants look at first and how long they look at either women as though they expect something to happen in the video, in that area of the video where the woman is. And they expect the spit-bonded woman to be the one to care for her, her ailing companion? Yeah. So um, they expect the woman who had shared food in this way that uh, implies saliva sharing to be the one to respond. Huh. So why is this important for little kids to distinguish between these very close relationships? One thing I wanted to point out is that we are not making the argument that people who don't have these relationships aren't good at taking care of children because, you know, I drop my toddler off at daycare every single day and daycare teachers are amazing. Uh, but we don't expect daycare teachers to have these sort of long, enduring attachments with infants. And those types of relationships are likely really important. It's not sort of like an indicator of, of who's going to necessarily in the moment be good at taking care of you, but it's an indicator of who's going to be around for a long time. So what does this study help us better understand about children's psychological development than social relationships? These data can't speak to how infants are using these cues in their everyday lives because we showed them people who they had never interacted with before. What this does let us know is that there's a lot going on uh, in the minds of infants and they're really in tune to the social interactions that are around them. And they're using that to figure out what is this social world that I've been sort of thrown into that's so complicated? Who knows each other? Who's connected and how are they connected? I know you made an effort in your research to have a more representative sample of the U.S. population, and you actually turned to TikTok to source participants in the study. Tell me more about that. One challenge in developmental psychology is that we tend to test a really specific part of the population. It tends to be people whose parents are super educated. It tends to be overly white in terms of the, the makeup of the U.S. And so we wanted to, you know, take this issue really seriously. We wanted to increase the diversity in terms of race, ethnicity, region in the United States, and um, parental income and education. And so what we did is we reached out to TikTok creators, and these TikTok creators were moms themselves, and they had you know, followers who were moms, and they participated with their own kid in the study. And then what they would do is make these wonderful videos that showed what it's like to participate in a developmental psychology study uh, and put a link to how other people could, could participate. You know, when I read your research, it finally 
helped explain to me why my grandkids want to share their spit-covered food and toys with me. <laughs> yeah, so our research can't directly speak to how babies are using this in their own social interactions, but that is a very common observation that parents have. And one place we want to take this research in the future is to figure out how babies might be using these types of interactions in their own social experiences and within their own social relationships. Well, thank you very much, Ashley, for taking time to talk with us. I will now look at my granddaughter while we're feeding it with new eyes. <laughs> Great. I'm glad. Ashley Thomas, postdoctoral fellow in Brain and Cognitive Sciences at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We have to take a break, and when we come back, a story about corporate influence in public universities and how that affects agricultural programs. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. And now it's time to check in on the state of science. This is KER St. Louis Public Radio KKD Iowa News. Public Radio News. Local science stories of national significance. Ag schools in the U.S. are an important place for research and innovation into how we grow our food. But the money funding these schools from taxpayers has gone down over the years. So eager to fill the gaps left behind, a lot of schools are turning to private companies to fund their programs. Companies like Monsanto and Kent Corporation, who have a big interest in agricultural research. Funding from the corporate sector into public universities has, unsurprisingly, caused some tension between those who welcome the money and those who worry about conflicts of interest. This is the basis for a series called Big Ag U from Harvest Public Media and Investigate Midwest. Dana Cronin, agriculture and environment reporter for Harvest Public Media, based in Champaign, Illinois, joins us. Welcome to Science Friday. Thanks, Ira. Let's talk about how much money corporations have put into agricultural schools at public universities. Yeah, so we found that corporations have given at least $170 million to ag schools here in the Midwest. I do want to emphasize that that's likely a severe undercount because it only represents donations made to four universities. We did file records requests for donor information at almost a dozen different Midwestern universities, but we only got back four because many states have privacy laws in place that protect donor information. But the four schools we did get some numbers for include University of Illinois, Iowa State University, Oklahoma State University, and the University of Missouri. Now, did you find that the, the universities seek the money or do the corporations offer it? Or is it a combination of both? It is. It's a combination of both. Schools, for one, um, you know, over the past decade or so, the amount of federal and state tax dollars going to public universities has largely dwindled. That's part of the reason that tuition always seems to be going up. But that's left universities in a tough spot, you know, without that public support, a lot of these schools have turned to private support. And a lot of that money has come from corporations that in many cases see an opportunity to fund research that they have some vested interest in. Some university officials that we spoke to also said that corporate funding actually keeps their research more relevant. I do want to play a clip here. This is Daniel Robeson. He's the dean of the ag school at Iowa State University, and he originally spoke with my colleague Katie Pikus. 
It's funding that helps keep us relevant with respect to pragmatic needs that are on the ground. And there are many, many organizations, companies that are doing fundamental research as well. And so our ability to work with them and their interest in working with us speaks to, I think it speaks largely to our relevancy, uh, frankly, to the industry that helps to support the production of food. Let's talk about the potential conflicts of interest between the universities and the companies funding them. One of the stories in your series talks about a specific case between Monsanto and the University of Illinois. Tell us about that conflict. Yeah, so our reporting partner, Investigate Midwest, obtained some emails between a Monsanto exec and University of Illinois officials. Um, To back up a little bit, Monsanto, which is now called Bayer, is a big agriculture company that has donated millions of dollars to the University of Illinois, primarily to establish an innovation center here on campus. And around the time the center opened in 2018, Monsanto was coming under fire publicly, maybe you heard about this, for one of its products, a weed killer called dicamba, which was damaging farm fields across the country. So a weed scientist at the University of Illinois was really concerned about what he was seeing. And he was interviewed expressing that concern about dicamba and the damage it was doing to the ag industry. And Monsanto wasn't happy about that. An executive at the company ended up emailing the dean of the ag school at the University of Illinois saying, quote, hate to see the U of I take these positions. The ag school dean ended up defending its professor, but this is just another example of the sticky situations that universities find themselves in when they accept corporate money. That's really interesting and very blatant. And, and I could imagine that uh, the, the, the defense by the university might not always be the case, right? What are people against corporate funding saying about cases like this? Exactly. That case is very blatant. But, you know, we did hear from a lot of people who were concerned that corporate money influenced the general direction of research that takes place at universities in the long term. I want to play another clip. Uh, This is Gabrielle McNally with American Farmland Trust. It's this much more tacit sort of control over the research agenda. And so it's a way for people to say like, well, they're not controlling us. They're not our puppet masters but we only research the crops that they're heavily investing in. Another researcher we spoke to said that he was concerned about what's not getting funded. In other words, corporations are only interested in funding research that they may ultimately benefit from in some way. And that leaves out a lot of important research that just doesn't have the same level of financial backing. Wow, that is that is difficult to hear. On the other hand, it seems like these universities are in a bit of a tight spot. I mean, if the money wasn't coming from corporations, would these programs get funded at all? Right. Well, I think that is the fundamental problem here. Universities are really in a catch-22 situation. It's not that all corporate donations come with these sort of invisible strings attached, but it's always a risk in accepting corporate money. And, you know, it doesn't seem to me like there are more federal and state tax dollars for universities on the horizon. So schools are in a tough spot. So the future looks more 
like the past then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I'm afraid to say throughout reporting this series, I didn't get the sense that there were any big changes to that current funding model on the horizon. I think without federal and state governments really stepping up to provide more funding to these schools, I think this corporate funding model may be here to stay. Well, thank you, Dana, for your diligence on this story. It's a kind of story we all need to hear. Thank you, Ira. Dana Cronin, agriculture and environment reporter for Harvest Public Media, based in Champaign, Illinois. We end this hour with one of my favorite topics, the intersection between technology and agriculture. Now, you all know that food is one of our basic needs, and I don't have to tell you that as the population of the world grows, we're going to need a lot more of it while working with the same amount of space that we've got. That is a real challenge. And this is where my new favorite concept comes into play, agrivoltaics. This is a farming setup that mixes water, energy, and plant growth all in one space. Let me tell you what I mean. Solar panels collect energy from the sun's rays, and underneath these panels is where plants grow. So this setup takes less water than the traditional way of farming, all in all making this a more sustainable way to grow food and create energy. That's why I am so psyched to learn more about this. Joining me to talk about the promise of agrivoltaics is Dr. Chad Higgins, Associate Professor of Biological and Ecological Engineering at Oregon State University in Corvallis. Welcome to Science Friday. Thanks. Happy to be here. Nice to have you. All right, let's get into this. Let's start with just how this setup works. You know, to most people, it would seem a little backwards that plants do well grown under solar panels. Right. The the reaction from a lot of people is, wouldn't there be not enough sun? Right. And uh, in certain circumstances, they, they would be correct. Your intuition is right there. But where it gets interesting is that plants actually don't need full sun. And we can design arrays such that we only take the sun that the plants don't use or don't want or don't need. Huh. So what do the plants do with the extra sun normally when they have it? So what do you do when you get too hot? You sweat. You start sweating, right? Plants do the same. So they have to keep their temperature at a certain rate, a certain level, just so they can uh, do their thing with photosynthesis. So when they get too much sun, they get too hot. So they take more water and they sweat out that water. This is why when you take that excess energy away and you keep them in a more comfortable zone, they use less water. Wow, that really makes sense. So they're not sweating away the unneeded water and you're not wasting water in irrigation. Now, is there a special kind of crop that works best with this setup? You know, there's many crops that that could do quite well. And there's a variety of studies by myself and my colleagues in, in Arizona, Ohio, Massachusetts, where they've shown that certain varieties of peppers, tomatoes uh, do really well. We've shown that potatoes uh, do really well, uh, beans as well. Some of the ones that don't do quite well tend to be the ones that are like corn that can take a lot of sun and, and uh, produce a lot. So, so yeah, there's some that work really well and some that might not be the best choice. Because that brings me to the question when I talk about this with people, the first question they say is, how do you actually harvest the plants? How are you going to get a tractor under those solar panels? So my response to that is um, you've only seen sun prioritizing solar arrays. You haven't seen one that's built 
for dual use. And it's really pretty easy technically. There's, there's a couple ways you can do it. One is you can raise up the panels so you drive the tractors underneath. That's the knee-jerk design reaction. It's also the most expensive way to do it. The second way is you can space out the panels wide enough so that it's wider than your typical equipment you go between. And the one that we're investigating a lot lately is, is articulated panels so that they actually tilt vertical up and out of the way you make your tractor pass and then they tilt back facing the sun. Wow. Okay. How much of America's farmland would you have to change to an agrivoltaic system for us to really see the benefits of this method? Yeah. One, one to 3% would get us to most of the sustainable energy targets as lined out by the Green New Deal proposal and, and other you know renewable targets that have been laid out. Now, I understand that at Oregon State, you run an experimental agrivoltaic site. What are the challenges with this type of system that you need to solve to make this work? Because I can't wait to see this. Well, your question you asked was really a real pertinent one is what's the crop? So this earth that we live on is wonderful and varied, but that makes designing systems to work everywhere really challenging. So what we're trying to get at is, you know, understanding the physics, the biology, the chemistry that go on behind the scenes so that we can, for a place and a climate, design an array and crop combination that works together really, really well. Well, my question then is, do you think it's going to take convincing farmers to buy into this setup? You know, the beauty of this is that, number one, if done well, it is a profitable endeavor, meaning that the farmer would make substantially more money per acre than they would just growing crops. So there, there is, I believe, free market forces will help you know push the sustainable technology forward. And the other thing is, is we don't have to convince everybody. It's only one to three percent of the farmland. That's you know one in a hundred, one in thirty. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Wow. And, and are there any federal or state tax incentives like I got when I put my solar panels on my roof? Same. And, you know, I can't speak to every state, but here there's, uh, there's tax incentive uh, programs and rebates for solar. Those tend to change year by year. And your listeners would probably want to check with their local uh, bylaws and tax laws and so on. But pretty much in the vast majority of states, there's some incentive for the solar beyond just the money that you would make from selling electricity as a crop. Well, my next question is, uh, I don't have a farm. I have a backyard garden. Mm -hmm. Will it be possible for me to go into Lowe's or a big box store and buy a setup from my own garden? And looking forward, if enough people do this, could you get that one to three percent of the population instead of just the farmers? You know, I'll have to do that calculation. I actually haven't done that calculation yet, but I can get back to you on it, Ira. I don't know if you can buy one yet, but I know of at least five startup companies that are working to design that kind of setup for um, home enthusiasts. And in your garden, those of you who are master gardeners, you might think of things like co-planting and, and using overstory and understory crops. It's, it's a very similar idea, but the overstory is the solar panels. And tell me about where you see this going. Can you lay out a plan or a, a schedule for adopting agrivoltaics? What's it going to take? There's a, there's a couple things that it takes. 
The one thing that, that the technical limitation right now has to do with the larger power grid that we have in our nation. As an example, a farmer comes to me, a grower comes to me and says, hey, Chad, you know, I really want to try this on an acre and see if it works for me. And if it works and I make the money that, that you, your calculations show, I'll expand it out. And the first thing I have to do is I, I say, okay, where's your farm? And I look and I see where's the, the closest substation to them. And if that substation is too far away from their farm, more than a couple miles, then I have to say, you know, it's probably not worth it because you would have to put in a whole bunch of power infrastructure to get to the substation. The next thing I do is I have to look at the substation because some of them are full. The pipes are full. You can't put more power through them. So even if a substation is there, you might not be able to send power to it. So, so that's the big technical limitation is having our American family farmers have access to the grid in a way that they would need to. And that hopefully will be built out in some of the infrastructure deals that are, that are going on. Chad, we have run out of time. I, I'm really looking forward to this idea and you making some progress and farmers around the country making progress with this. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. Thanks, Ira. It was a pleasure to be here. Dr. Chad Higgins, Associate Professor of Biological and Ecological Engineering at Oregon State University in Corvallis. Once again, we have run out of time for this hour. Here's Daniel Peterschmidt with some of the folks who made this show possible. Thanks, Ira. John Denkowski is our Director of News and Radio Projects. Melissa Mares is our Office Manager. Charles Berquist is our Radio Director. Kyle Marion Viterbo is our Engagement Producer. And I'm Digital Producer Daniel Peterschmidt. Thanks for listening. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. And of course, if you missed any part of this program or you would like to hear it again, subscribe to our podcasts or ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. And our Sci-Fi Book Club is about to kick off for spring. We are reading Sarah Stewart Johnson's book, The Sirens of Mars, all about space exploration, life on other planets, and how you study a world you can't see or touch yourself, starring, you guessed it, Mars. The book again is Sirens of Mars by Sarah Stewart Johnson. Check out sciencefriday.com slash book club for your chance to win a free copy. Ooh, yeah. Sign up for our newsletter updates and a whole lot more. That's sciencefriday.com slash book club. Have a great weekend. I'm Ira Flato.